Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me? Is this mic working? Okay, very good. Good to know that something is working despite the crisis. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to this lecture, uh, which is jointly uh, brought to you by the European Institute of this Illustrious Organization and by FT Business. The topic, you know, will the rich man's crisis cost the emerging economies, is well chosen. Every time that the LSE seems to announce a lecture on a particular region, uh, by the time the lecture comes around, that region is in crisis. And um, uh, in fact, East, Central and Eastern Europe are today probably facing their worst crisis since the transition began. I think it's most, certainly more serious than the Russian crisis of 98, which only affected uh, uh, Russia and the countries directly highly exposed to it. This time, it is the world and within <laughs> the world, uh, Central Eastern Europe, that are facing very severe challenges. We are therefore very fortunate, and it is a great uh, privilege for me to be introduced uh, Dr. Thomas Miro, the president of the European Bank for uh, Reconstruction uh, and Development. Uh, uh, Dr. Miro uh, has uh, been at the uh, bank uh, since 2008. Uh, he certainly arrived, uh, as the Chinese would say, at an interesting time. Uh, he probably wishes it was slightly less interesting, but um, uh, and, uh, his uh, capacities for leadership was certainly be tested in his most difficult time. Before uh, taking on his current position, uh, Dr. Mura was uh, Secretary of State in the Bundesministerium of Finance, the Finance Ministry. Um, he spent some time in the private sector before that, and an extended spell as Senator uh, in uh, Hamburg uh, um, uh, before that. He also, I think, is the only head of a multilateral organization to have got a PhD in, in political science, I believe, and, uh, which, is, uh, um, which is encouraging for those of us who, uh, <laughs> who have aspirations in life. Yes. So um, uh, <laughs> um, it is uh, my great privilege to introduce uh, Dr. Muro. He will give his presentation and then be open to questions and answer sessions. Thank you. Dr. Muro. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Boiter, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for the invitation to speak to you today here at the London School of Economics. This is a great honor for me personally and also for the institution, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Without doubt, this is one of the most prestigious institutions in a city where there is definitely no shortage of highly respected centers of, of excellence. In line with the venerable tradition of your university, you have given me a challenging task indeed today and asked me to discuss the question, will the Richmond's crisis crush the emerging economies? In a word, our answer to this question is no, <laughs> at least in terms of the region we are particularly attached to. By the way, you know the story about the no of President Yeltsin because it just comes to my mind. A, and because it is 10 years ago, a, a foreign 
very distinguished visitor comes to Yeltsin and says, Mr. President, could you tell me in one word the situation, the economic situation of Russia? And the answer was good. And the distinguished guest looks very wise and says, um, and in two words, Mr. President, not good. <laughs> so uh, it's sometimes, and sometimes it's easier to have one word than two. Given the current global situation, and more specifically the situation in Eastern Europe, and as president of the EBRD, I can only speak for the countries of our region, which stretches from the eastern borders of Germany to the deserts of Mongolia and from the Baltic Sea to Turkey, this statement may seem bold, and it obviously deserves some explanation. Allow me to set out in a few points why we firmly believe that emerging Europe will not be crushed by the present crisis. It may seem like an ironic twist of history, but just when they were to celebrate their 20th anniversary of the end of communism, and for many, their fifth year of EU membership, the countries of Eastern European countries have been faced with the worst financial and economic crisis for at least a generation. Mm -hmm. Although I agree with what Professor Boyter wrote in his blog recently that some of the Central and East European countries were the victims of wild domestic credit and asset market booms and bubbles even before they were hit by the global credit crunch, it is equally true that the global economic crisis did not start in the East, but in our Western economies. The financial turmoil which began in the US affected heavily exposed, exposed economies like Ireland and the UK first, and then rapidly spread to the key economies of continental Western Europe even to those which for quite a while had deemed they would be less affected, like, for instance, Germany. In contrast, the Eastern European economies displayed remarkable resilience for a long time, and it was only after the leading economies in the West plunged into recession that Eastern Europe began to feel the full impact of the global crisis. The crisis struck the East when some of the new EU countries were least prepared to deal with it. Gradually adapting to eventual Euro membership, some had already given up currency controls. Furthermore, the crisis exposed existing vulnerabilities and imbalances the main one being their reliance and in some cases over-reliance on foreign financing and foreign currency debt. What is making today's crisis so serious, perhaps even unprecedented, 
is that so many adverse factors all seem to be coming together and happening at almost the same time. Credit dries up. Production slumps. Currencies tumble and consequently the real value of the already high foreign debt explodes just as the real economy goes into decline demand for credit falls and refinancing needs become more and more urgent. It is a vicious cycle indeed. It would, however, be a grave mistake to paint the future in colors too bleak. What we are now facing in some countries in Eastern Europe is a severe recession but not a collapse. The adjustment process will be painful enough and test the strength of all involved from politicians to bankers to the people. But this is not a crisis with runs on banks or with sovereign defaults. The economic performance in most countries of Eastern Europe remains no weaker and often stronger than that in Western Europe. There are strong underlying fundamentals in Eastern Europe which remain in place and need to be protected. We have every reason to believe that once the present situation has been stabilized, emerging Europe will bounce back stronger. The situation today is serious, but it is manageable. Solutions, however, do not present themselves out of nowhere. They need to be worked out and implemented. Luckily, the state we are in is not the Europe of long time past. The Europe we live in may not be fully united but it has been growing together ever since 1945. Kipling's lines that East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet have mercifully been overcome by political and economic developments in Europe. For the past 20 years, the integration of Eastern Europe into the world economy has been a remarkable success story. Not only has it provided these countries with a crucial pillar of stability as they have undergone dramatic social changes, but the integration has also happened in a manner that has led to a greater degree of interdependence between East and West than perhaps ever before. Today, more than 50% of the banks in Eastern Europe, and in some cases as many as 80%, are owned by Western banking groups. For many years, this has meant a high inflow of capital, the establishment of a modern banking sector, and the availability of loans to the real economy as well as consumers. Equally, the investments of Western companies have led 
to the revival of existing industrial bases or in some cases even to the creation of new structures. That way, the Slovak Republic, which was born under serious concerns about its survival chances when Czechoslovakia split at the end of 1992, became the biggest car producer per capita in the world in recent years. Today, some of what used to be our West European industrial base is located in the east and south of the continent. As the West moved towards more value-added products and services, the East produced many of the goods we would then buy at affordable prices. With the inclusion of the East, the single European market took a large step forward. In this interdependent world, protectionism is exactly the wrong answer to our problems and will only make us all poorer in the long run. Similar to the West, where everybody acknowledges the differences between, say, France and Portugal, there are also differentiations to be made in the East. Among the new EU member states, Hungary and Latvia have been hit earlier and harder by the crisis, in part for the reason Professor Boyder referred to in his blog. The Czech Republic, with little exposure to private foreign currency debt, and Poland, with a large domestic market, are also feeling the crisis, but are certainly in a different position. If we look at the economic forecasts, some of the countries in Eastern Europe are still expected to do better than their peers in the West. The biggest concern in the region at the moment is Ukraine, which is confronted with a multitude of problems. An inherently instable political situation only exacerbates a grave economic situation. We are encouraged by the recent declarations of unity the appointment of a new vice prime minister in charge of crisis management and the imminent return to Kiev of an IMF delegation. In this context, we call on the decision makers in Ukraine to honor their commitments. Such a commitment will be backed by the strong partnership of the international financial institutions, including the EBRD. This is not only about much-needed finance, but also about restoring trust in the country. One can, of course, see Ukraine also as a test case for international solidarity. The stability of Ukraine is of crucial importance for the future of all Europe. Ukraine clearly has a European perspective as acknowledged by the European Union which has granted the country priority status in the European neighborhood policy. And yet, not being a member of the EU, it is in a different position in tackling the crisis than, say, 
neighboring Hungary or Poland. Many scholars hold that the modern name Ukraine is derived from Ukraina in the sense of borderland and frontier region. We must not allow it to become a no man's land. As a signal of European solidarity but also of economic sense, we endorse the view taken at last week's EU summit that in providing support to their own banks, West European countries must not prevent those funds being used to help their subsidiaries in Eastern Europe. Maintaining the flow of credit and not retrenching behind national borders is crucial for all in Europe. Shutting the door to our neighbors now will also mean shutting the door to our own future. For the EBRD, the crisis in our region is arguably the biggest challenge we have ever faced. We have reacted by raising our business volume this year to 7 billion euro, an increase of some 25% over last year. We have also designed crisis response packages for the banking and corporate sectors and are almost doubling our trade finance program to maintain vital trade flows. From the outset of the crisis, we have worked closely with other international financial institutions to coordinate our effort and to complement each other in order to have maximum impact with our limited resources. At the end of February, the EBRD, the European Investment Bank, and the World Bank Group launched a joint action plan worth almost 25 billion euro, which aims at supporting the banking sector in Eastern Europe so that lending to the real economy can be maintained or resumed. The enormity and severity of the global crisis simply makes it too big for any single actor, not even the United States, to solve it alone. While West European countries have designed rescue packages worth hundreds of billions of euros or pounds, many East European countries just lack similar resources. This does not mean there is nothing they could or should do. On the contrary, the crisis should be the moment to lay the foundation for future sustainable growth. The right steps now will be crucial to regaining confidence. Behind the dramatic headlines it is easy to overlook that amid all the doom and gloom, progress is being made. We are witnessing a growing awareness of the severity of the crisis. And as I mentioned before, what some countries now report dramatic falls in industrial output, the banking sector so far has been more resilient than some worst case scenarios had predicted. 
This is not to say that we can sound the all clear. On the contrary, it's more important now than ever that the international community is moving closer together to find solutions. This is why expectations for the upcoming G20 meeting here in London could hardly be higher. We strongly hope this summit will encourage and enable the multinational development banks to take their share of responsibility. <clears throat> the international financial institutions need to be strengthened to play their role as effective tools in the global crisis response. As Hungary's Prime Minister Ferenc Gyrcsony said recently when he paid a visit to the EBRD, global problems require global solutions. The EBRD is the institution which brings together East and West in a unique way. All our 30 countries of operations are shareholders and at the same time our shareholders also include the major Western industrialized nations plus the EU and the EIB. As such, the EBRD cannot but believe in the future of emerging Europe. And it is precisely the experience built up in Eastern Europe over the past 17 years that gives us the confidence that emerging Europe will not be crushed by the Richmond crisis. Underneath the present problems, many of the fundamental remain strong. Eastern Europe offers a huge market. Today it is home to some of the most efficient and productive factories in Europe. It has made considerable improvements in its institutional setup and business climate. It offers attractive tax regimes and labor costs. Last but not least, it enjoys a well-educated, young, and flexible workforce. <coughs> through EU membership, or even through EU aspirations, these countries are now more closely integrated within Europe than ever before in their history. Therefore, we believe that Eastern Europe will come out of the present crisis, perhaps bruised and battered, but not beaten. But will Western Europe do much better? This seems unlikely, and therefore I think it is at least misleading to portray the current crisis as a crisis of Eastern Europe. We still do not know when the worst of the current Turbulence will be over to say nothing of when the recovery will begin. I shall be interested to hear your views, Professor Beuters, on this, but what seems likely is that we cannot anytime soon expect a return to growth rates of 5 to 7% in the East every year as we had enjoyed prior to 2008. I'm I'm afraid this will also apply to other parts of emerging world. Of course we will recover, and man always does 
but it is likely to happen more slowly on a smaller scale and with less stormy developments. We may have to start entertaining the idea that we are witnessing a redimensioning of our whole global economic system where some of the things we had taken for granted will become luxury items and others will simply disappear. In this light, we should see this crisis as an opportunity to invest as soon as we can in foundations for our future, such as clean energy, renewables, and new technologies. The EBRD has made the support of sustainable energy one of its core activities. We have invested more than 2.5 billion euro in almost 150 projects in 21 countries since mid-2006, and we are currently preparing the launch of our Sustainable Energy Efficiency Initiative 2. At the center of the initiative is a simple idea. The less energy we waste, the more we have at our disposal and the less dependent we are on supplies. The potential for savings is enormous and ranges from more efficient production in power plants to the upgrade of insulation in private households. The EBRD is providing finance to such efforts through loans to local banks for on-lending to commercial and private consumers. Where we already have such programs in place, like in Bulgaria or the Slovak Republic, they are hugely successful. More efficient, greener means of production and consumption will also be important elements of our future economic structure as we adapt to the challenges of climate change. We may have to learn to make more out of less in finance as well as in manufacturing as well as in the use of our resources and commodities. If the result will be less spectacular but more sustainable growth we will all benefit. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, I will just uh, abuse Charmino's privilege by trying to give a two-second tentative answer to a question that was sort of addressed uh, to me indirectly and then open it to the floor there are two people with um, uh, microphones who will uh, toss this at you, and if you catch it, you can speak through it. Um, uh, when do we see a return to the growth rates that we saw in the region of East and Central Europe uh, before the impact, the real economy impact of the crisis hit them? Uh, as one, somebody once said, uh, making predictions is very difficult, especially of the future. Um, even predicting the past is very difficult, which is why we have a field called history at universities. But um, um, clearly, uh, global demand will have to recover for the region to 
enjoy the benefit of the, the export-led component of its demand growth. It may get to more domestically driven demand in due course, but it's still heavily dependent on its major markets. And, well, in some ways, my guess is as good as anybody else's. Um, we, and we have very little experience of the nature of a recovery after the wholesale destruction of the global cross-border financial system. My presumption is that since every recovery is an investment recovery, just as every downturn is an investment downturn, and since investment after a downturn will have to be externally financed, the fact that the credit system is on its uppers is going to be a, a drag on the recovery. So I foresee several years of, uh, of uh, declining output or stalling output at best. But when it gets going, I don't think the growth potential of the region should have been significantly adversely affected, except possibly in one sense. In a technological sense, technology diffusion, um, convergence potential, it's all still there. Uh, there are decades of superior growth in principle. The one real bottleneck will be the increased cost and decreased availability of external finance. Almost every country in the region is a low-saving country. Uh, the necessary investment volumes for high growth have to be financed in part from foreign funds. And that will be a much more difficult game. So I foresee some adverse effect on that even in the medium term. But uh, uh, let's first get this crisis over with. So, first question, please. Um, gentleman there? Yes? Okay. Hello. Uh, good evening. Thank you for your words. My name is Thomas Overmeer. And uh, today, the Financial Times has an interview with with Inácio Lula Silva, Brazil's president, and in his words he says, as, a, as the governor of a great economy described as emerging, what I can say is what sort of society I hope will emerge from this crisis. It will reward production and not speculation. The function of the financial sector will be to stimulate productive activity. And my question is how we can come up come out of this crisis with this type of financial system? Well, I think, first of all, it's important to discuss and I think in the end then agree on the fact that the detachment of the financial sector from the real economy is one of the basic elements of the crisis. So indeed to have a more robust and intrinsic interlinkage between real economy and the financial sector matters. On the other hand, I think one has to be clear that with the shrinking balance sheets, with the stronger regulation we will put on the financial sector, with the lower risk appetite that we recommend to banks, 
and with the liabilities uh, they have, including those towards their respective states. Capital and liquidity will be a much more precious resource than it has been before. And precious means also expensive. And this means that much of the growth which has been driven by credit taking and by financial constructions will probably not occur again. So on one hand this probably will serve the goal you have alluded to. On the other hand I think we will get a debate uh, as soon as uh, the acute crisis will be over on how we can combine a more solid financial sector with the need for growth and for financing that a growing world population uh, will request. So one aspect is, so to speak, the, the, the social uh, behavior of the financial sector. And I think this will improve because taxpayers' money has been invested so much in coping with the crisis. But the other and very decisive question, which probably is not yet really discussed, is what will this mean in terms of how to finance growth in the future? The lady in green back there. Hi, my name is Vanya Dragomanovic. I'm a financial journalist. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions, Mr. Miro. First is, how do you think the countries of former Yugoslavia will fare in this crisis, particularly Croatia and Serbia? And secondly, uh, in regards to uh, what you mentioned about clean energy in the region, uh, clean energy is still a fairly small industry compared to everything else. Um, do you think clean energy can uh, bring significant profits to the countries, um, particularly the ones you mentioned, Bulgaria, Slova Slovakia? And um, what kind of time frame are we talking about uh, for, for that to, to impact the, the, the sort of local economies? Or is this still proportionally just a small part of, of an overall income of the country? Thank you. Um. First, on the countries of former Yugoslavia, they have some of the problems uh, to share with, with other countries in the East, like, for instance, current account deficits. Um, and Croatia certainly is currently struggling with uh, the attempt to defend its exchange rate to uh, the euro. Um, at the same time, Serbia certainly is in a much more stable political shape than it has been for a very long time. And uh, my sense is 
problems are there, whether in one case or the other there will be a request to the IMF to support them, we will see. What I would very strongly argue is that the European Union should continue to have a concrete perspective for all of these countries to get member of the European Union because I am deeply convinced that for political and for economic reasons the future of the Western Balkans is only conceivable under the roof of the European Union. In terms of renewables and and other elements of uh, energy innovation and energy efficiency, yes, uh, they are small parts of the economy in that region until now. Uh, but I think uh, there is a grown awareness in these countries that this is an orientation one should pursue certainly in that region not only for climate change mitigation aspects but also for improving energy security in terms of reducing the dependence on Russia uh, in terms of oil and uh, gas. So um, that certainly will take time. It will not get easier in a time of crisis because of the needed private capital to co-invest is scarcer than it had been in good times but uh, we have a good number of projects in our project pipeline and I think with Copenhagen coming in late this year and then the post-Kyoto process getting on its way uh, and on the other hand looking at the very high energy consumption to GDP ratio in those countries there's a, a huge room for good investments Thank you um, Let me see Walter uh, over there Dr. Mir, you quoted approvingly uh, some visitor to BVRD, global problems require global solutions. Can I therefore take it that you disagree with the position that the EU has taken last weekend that we should all do on a case-by-case -case approach and not get for the big solutions? Well, also a case-by-case approach can, can be meaningful. But um, it's, it's probably, probably more about a political psychology. I can very well understand the Czech chair and a big country like Poland supporting it, saying, but look, we are not in a mess. We are in a better shape, in a better situation don't mix us up with Ukraine or with Latvia. And this is certainly true. On the other hand, 
the call for differentiation also to some degree reduces a political momentum. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you try to be in the shoes of a German chancellor, for instance, if you listen to a Czech prime minister chairing the EU and saying, well, please look at us as a differentiated region. And for a German chancellor who always has a feeling that she or he has to protect uh, the money in the pocket, she would probably not argue, but, but I want to see you as a region and I want to help you. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a question of striking the right balance between, yes, on t- to look at differentiation, and as I said, this also applies to other regions of the world, but at the same time not underlining this fact to a degree that would make other people get into a mood of saying, well, but if there's only some countries that are running into troubles, then we might only look at them if they are in trouble and on a case-by-case approach. So I think it's, it's a, a question of political psychology, and I think one should not underestimate that certain aspects are prevailing in the whole region, as, for instance, the fact that most of the countries, beside of Russia and Kazakhstan, are very much interlinked with the Western banking sector. This is a particular aspect of, of this region. So I think it's, it's about getting the right uh, balance, but uh, if, if the European countries wish to be efficient in their case-by-case approach, it is uh, helpful anyway, and as you may have heard, uh, seems to be close and intense nego- negotiations these days with Romania, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. Very well. This gentleman over here. My question refers to second-order effects, or as Charlie Munger would put it, the what-then question. Um, I hope you won't accuse me of overly sophisticated and developed analysis if I claim that the Great Depression led to Hitler and the Second World War um, and not wanted to suggest that we're in the same situation this time. But um, is it within the remit of the EBRD to consider second-order effects? And if so, which sorts of effects would you be most concerned with at the current time? Well, the EBRD is indeed a somewhat particular institution in the family of the IFIs as it has a truly political mandate. It is not just to foster market economy, but also democracy in the region. And, um, and I think we all should be very cautious in uh, publicly uh, debating about the eventuality of political moves 
uh, as in a reaction to what is happening. But uh, I think it's only fair to say that uh, the West, so to speak, has strongly encouraged uh, the whole region to follow its political, social, and economic patterns. And if uh, there now would be a widespread feeling in the region that uh, this was a recipe for good times, but as soon as times are getting hard, uh, there would be any sense of responsibility anymore. This, of course, could lead to deception and people that are deceived and that are uh, worrying about their future sometimes tend to not very reasonable political choices. So, um, again, I, I wouldn't uh, speculate on this, but I rather would appeal to the Westerners, so to speak, to um, do whatever they can to reduce any risk in that respect uh, to the degree possible. Uh, the lady um, over there, yes. The mic is on its way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to what extent can the banks in Western Europe uh, use the funds and guarantees under the national rescue packages to help their foreign subsidiaries in Eastern Europe right now? I mean, are there any legal constraints? Now, as far as we can see, uh, there had been a certain risk that this would be the case, but this case has not materialized. Some have also changed some elements of their regulation in terms of banking bailout uh, schemes. Uh, the EU leaders were very clear on this uh, when they met uh, on that Sunday. And what we see today, by the way, is somewhat different from what we have seen a couple of months ago. Now, what we see is not that much anymore a lack of liquidity in the subsidiaries. What we see is a standard of risk-taking and a pricing of credits that even with liquidity being available in principle uh, credits especially to new clients uh, are getting more and more rare uh, and many banks just focusing on restructuring credits and loans to existing clients gentleman over there, yes, with the grey jacket. Can you just tell us more precisely to which extent your own funds have been reduced um, as a effect of the current crisis, uh, either sourced from the commercial lenders or, or investors or, or sourced from, from the um, state investors? Well, as we publish our balance sheet, I can tell that indeed our equity 
value has been reduced by something like $3 billion out of $6.5, which is a write-down in fair value accounting and does not really say anything about our capabilities because we are not intending to sell our stakes in this moment of time. But that's the way balance sheets have to be established. So the general reserves of the bank have been reduced by something overall because there have also been new investments by overall something like $2 billion last year. We have not yet seen in 2008 loans not performing, so we have no impaired or nearly no impaired loans. So if you take all in all the paid-in capital, not the callable capital, but the paid-in capital plus the reserves, we have something like $11 billion on a balance sheet of something like $32 billion. So probably almost any bank in the world would envy us on the tier one capital we have. Even most central banks would probably envy you, yes. They fortunately have one instrument we haven't. They can print money. Gentleman over here. Dr. Mir, I have a question with regard to Central Asia. IBRD is regarded as the biggest investor in non-oil and gas and non-mineral resources sectors of Kazakhstan. And what are your views on economic situation in Kazakhstan as an investor? Well, Kazakhstan follows a somewhat different crisis path than other countries because different from all other countries we are engaged in, Kazakhstan has already been hit in 2007 through its real estate crisis channeling through its banks. And this story is not yet over. On the other hand, differing from the Ukraine, Kazakhstan is a politically stable country with a considerable amount of state reserves which are now used to stabilize our banks and they, as you know probably, the state has engaged into some of the biggest banks in Kazakhstan in a way which is to some degree comparable to the way it is, for instance, done in this country. So Kazakhstan has a special story to tell, but my guess is that also probably because of a rather adaptive population, it will go through hard times but then recover 
even though to this country certainly will apply that the pattern of growth and probably also the magnitude of growth rates will differ from what we have known before the crisis. Sentiment over there, and then the lady over there. Uh, Charles Gandhi, can you please comment on uh, how you feel about the extent to which consumers in Eastern Europe may hold debts that are denominated in other currencies, such as Swiss franc or other currencies, in the, in the environment where local currencies may be depreciating, and, and therefore consumers may find themselves and uh, find it difficult to service their debts. This indeed is a um, crucial problem, and for instance in Hungary this has largely contributed to uh, the severe financial downturn. In some countries it has been better balanced because uh, the deposit ratio in the banks were higher than for instance it had been in, in Hungary. Uh, but yes, this was sort of inverse carry trade, and uh, this is always uh, a fine thing as long as it works, and it is a mess uh, if it stops working, and it is uh, certainly uh, a very strong additional argument for why the whole region should, as soon as possible, be part of the currency union. The lady with the black and white uh, thingy. Um, taking the question, um, Ukraine. Like since independence, a lot of effort has been diverted from reform to the tension between pro-Russian and pro-nationalist rhetoric, and um, in, in within and outside the government. So, what would you suggest um, for Ukrainian government? granted that even the crisis has not put those tensions aside. And also, maybe you could throw in a few words on just Russian position in this, this current crisis. Well, of course, every nation has to decide uh, herself whether she wants to be a nation, yes or no. Uh, this cannot be a matter of advice uh, from the outside. Uh, to me, uh, the Ukraine, which is a big country with a big population, has many features of being a successful European country. And I would hope that the leaders would find the maturity to see that the present situation in the Ukraine is too serious and too severe to go on battling uh, till elections early next year. And when I was there and had the privilege to speak to the Prime Minister and to the President, I made very clear that without this prerequisite which has been formulated by the IMF, others too would not be in a position to help, but that on the other side, 
we would be ready to help, and even more so than last year, which means we would be ready to invest more than a billion euros in the financial sector, but also in the real economy, if there would be an agreement on the IMF uh, proposal, and if uh, some immediate needs, for instance, in terms of anti-corruption, but also in terms of corporate governance, including important institutions like uh, the National Bank, uh, would be would be fulfilled. Hello. Um, how concerned are you about? You mentioned that you've increased trade finance facilitation um, facilities, doubled it this year. How concerned are you about the lack of trade finance in the region? And is this one of your sort of top, top priorities for the bank in terms of dealing with the crisis? Yes, we are very concerned indeed because um, our feeling is that banks in the world are really shy of financing trade, even though trade financing is a less riskier business than many others, uh, many others that, that banks used to do. And, um, and this is, of course, a very imminent uh, danger that uh, political uh, options of more protectionism may coincide with a drying out of trade financing markets. So um, that's the very reason why uh, the EBRD, like others uh, among the international financial institutions, have decided to gear up their trade financing programs and facilities. This is one of the very basic things you can do in a very short moment of time to really add value in a world in which particularly the SMEs find it very difficult to get the financing they need. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering whether you could share with us of your views of the competitive advantages of Eastern European countries in terms of uh, uh, manufacturing against China. So, thank you. Well, I think what we have seen um, until very recently is that uh, the combination of geographical proximity, and this includes a certain cultural proximity, uh, the availability of comparatively cheap and well-educated labor skills 
combined with a certain tradition uh, was a, a convincing offer. I mean, look at, for instance, uh, Skoda, uh, which is a, a company with a long and, and proud tradition, uh, and at the same time, uh, for Volkswagen, it was uh, a very interesting uh, branch, so to speak, to get because uh, it, it could take much of, of German engineering and uh, assemble it at, at lower prices. Uh, and this applies to, to some others uh, too. So I think it probably was not that much an immediate comparison of, let's say, Slovakia or Poland or the Czech Republic with China from the point of view of France or, or the UK or, or Germany, but it was more the comparison for Germany, for instance, with Germany itself. And it was, of course, um, also something which may seem to be reasonable in terms of producing uh, something which is uh, well known to the region and which is uh, requested by the region. Um, so that made sense, but as we see now, we have, if you take the car industry, we have, we have a very uh, difficult situation because we have a financial crisis, we have a real economic crisis, and on top of this, we have a structural crisis of the car industry in the world. So if anything adds, then of course uh, those regions that are highly dependent on the car industry suffer a lot. Um, let's see, lady in the middle there. for your very interesting and informative lecture. I would like to ask three questions and which are concerned with the um, monetary regime in Europe. The, and uh, in what uh, regards uh, have countries which uh, have the uh, euro as currency um, been impacted uh, by the crisis in comparison with new member states which do not have the euro? Uh, my second question is in what regards uh, uh, the recovery uh, of these countries would be impacted by uh, being in or out of the Eurozone. And thirdly... No, um, only two questions. <laughs> per person. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I think um, it's, it's fair to say that Slovenia and Slovakia are envied by their neighbors for being member of the Eurozone. And this is because they didn't need to invest so much in the defense of their currencies. Uh, you have seen that even a country like Poland that has had a growth rate of 2.9 in the quarter for 2008, which is really remarkable compared to probably nearly all other European countries, has seen a depreciation of the sloty of something like 30%. So you see, and, and if you look 
in another direction, you would have seen that, that probably one of the most stable economies in the world, in, in, which is Denmark, had to suffer by the fact that it uh, has a, a, a small currency of its own. So yes, indeed, I, I do think that uh, the non-EU, the non-Eurozone countries have suffered less than their immediate neighbors and, and so far have probably a, an easier access to recovery than the non-Eurozone countries. And my sense is that not only in Europe, but in the whole world, the current crisis will trigger a debate about the desirability and feasibility of more currency unions. This is at least what I see in the Middle East. This is what I see in the Far East of Asia. And, um, of course, this is not easy to make, and we will see whether the political structures will suffice uh, to get to such a, an entity but um, I think this is indeed one of the lessons to be learned with the currency of your own if you are not a very big country you easily run into troubles and this applies to the UK too I'll say that um, let me see who else uh, the gentleman behind the You mentioned how difficult it was uh, for some countries to, well, especially the Ukraine, to negotiate the terms with the IMF. Also in the light of um, upcoming elections there, how difficult it is to sell it to the electorate. We see it in Turkey now as well. But then with a lot of elections coming up in Eastern Europe and likely more support needed from the IMF, how important do you think will these considerations become that, say, the straitjacket that the IMF imposes on these countries, freeze on public spending, increases, and how far will that jeopardize political stability in, 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 these, in these regions? So, Well, I think it's, first of all, fair to say that the IMF also has learned some lessons, for instance, from its behavior in the Asian crisis of the 90s. And Dominique Strauss-Kahn certainly is not a person who is unsensitive to the issues you have raised. On the other hand, one has to say those states who now think they can afford high budget deficits would have to show how they could get the needed financing for it. And if you look at the spreads of uh, the sovereign, uh, you see amounts in some, for some countries that just mean there is no money outside in private markets for their bonds. So um, I, I think there is an awareness by the IMF uh, that, uh, that the straitjacket concept uh, would be wrong. But there must also be an insight by the respective countries 
that uh, if they don't get money from the IMF, it's probably very difficult for them to get any financing in uh, private markets. Gentlemen over there. Hi, this is a question which is a, a bit of a variation on, on the question asked by the lady um, to my left. But um, I'm just wondering what your view is on, on the path of, um, of the exchange rates in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, you, you spoke about having an export-led recovery um, in the region. You know, wh where do you see these exchange rates actually going to with that view, as well as having to balance out the, you know, the effect of actually funding your FX or your external um, debt requirements? Um, how do you see that developing? And, and also, particularly with respect to Poland, can you speak about you know the credibility of Poland joining ERM2 at the moment as they as they want to, or quite, quite quickly? Thanks. Well, one one of the lessons I had to learn uh, already in my previous post was you rather should not publicly debate on currency developments. <laughs> because you never know how the headline looks like, uh, which uh, one journalist make, might make out of it. So I, I, I would not comment on exchange rates. Uh, the only thing I can say is that um, uh, I, I do think the Maastricht criteria should continue to prevail and that um, up to me, it might make sense to discuss whether ERM2 could be shortened from two years to a year and a half or a year mm -hmm. uh, for those countries uh, that are able to comply with the Maastricht criteria. But I think to open the Maastricht criteria in, in such a situation would mean to make uh, the euro uh, vulnerable, uh, m even more so than than he is, as all currencies are in these days. Very well. Um, at the, let's have three more questions. The gentleman in the middle at the back, second row. Uh, this is a question to both the gentlemen at the table. Um, don't you think that this, if the emerging economies follow the example of the United States and the United Kingdom, in, by going in for quantitative easing, they might be able to address some of the social and economic problems for which they don't have funding? Is that a possibility? And is there a silver lining to this crisis for them? Well, my answer would be um, that uh, I had to refer to the famous sentence that uh, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And um, I'm afraid this applies to the U.S. and possibly to the U.K. Um, I don't think that any of this con these countries has the possibility to do this in reality. I would agree with that uh, only the Eurozone itself
can do it internally. So that would affect Slovenia and Slovakia. But that, that's it. Uh, you need a serious currency to uh, engage in quantitative easing. And from a, uh, from a global perspective, uh, uh, you know, outside the euro, the dollar, really, I wouldn't even include the UK, uh, there, there really are no serious currencies. At the end, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, two more questions. Uh, the gentleman on the right there. Yeah, following on from that question, how concerned are you about the public sector debt levels in Eastern European countries? Well, up to now, this is one of the features of East Europe that beside of, of Hungary, uh, the debt of the public sector is much lower than it is in the West. So um, as financing is constrained, uh, we may expect that this will not change very much and this then may be one of the elements on which we can put some trust in terms of, of a recovery. Very well, and the last of the Mohegans uh, behind you, yeah, over there. I didn't mean the haircut. Hello. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I, had a, I have a question about uh, your opinion on China. Because um, China's economy was uh, really uh, dependent on uh, the high consumption U.S. market in exchange of uh, the financing of, of, of U.S. debt. And um, I was wondering, do you think there will be like a shift of power from the west to the east in terms of more independence of um, like developing um, a much more important domestic market in China for instance what is your opinion about the shift of, po of economic power that can appear in the next years <coughs> well I think this is one of the most tricky questions we have on the table because it is obvious that finally the United States need to reduce their consumption. But in doing so, we will miss one of the decisive engine growth, growth engines of, of the world. And to be frank with you, I don't see how we can easily replace it. So in so far, the cure of the crisis is a very hard one. It's not yet to seen in a full shape because to some degree the very high credit taking of the private sector in the U.S. has been replaced by a very high credit taking of the state. But this cannot be the final solution. Yes, China probably can do somewhat more in terms of home consumption, but there are not very many regions in the world that in any respect could come close to the United States in that aspect. Uh, 
there's such a discussion, discussion emerging, for instance, in Germany, that people argue German economy has relied too much on exports. But my question would be, how do you intend to change it? With a population that is aging, uh, that probably has nearly all basic goods you need for life. And that, at the, on the other end, sees that it has to save more for the age and that it has to invest more in the education of the children. So I don't see, for instance, for Germany, which is still an economy of the size of China, the possibility to shift its growth aggregates from an export-oriented industry to a home consumption economy. So I think this will be one of the, of the very crucial and very difficult questions to address. What can be done to bring about what all experts, including the international financial institutions, have prone for years, which is to reduce the global imbalances, and at the same time, have the United States as a source of world economic growth uh, in the way we knew it. And, and it, is, it, it proved to be rather simple. Uh, the Americans consumed, the Chinese delivered, and, uh, and Germany and some other countries provided China with the necessary engineering. And this whole chain collapsed. Uh, so how to re-establish a more sustainable growth model than this one that would not again rely to the same degree on credit taking will be a very difficult question to answer. Okay. Well, thank you. I would just to me the pleasant uh, duty of thanking uh, Dr. Miro for both an excellent presentation and for an extremely interesting and thoughtful uh, question-answer session, which was uh, extremely enlightening indeed. We hope to see him here again in the future, maybe to declare the end of the crisis. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.